for being here, doing worship with us. And if you're new this morning, I just encourage you to uh, stop by the coffee shop. And uh, it's not about um, some requirement, but it's about starting to know the people that we're around. We want to have relationship with you. We uh, we want to be the type of church that no matter how how big or small we get, that we know people by their names and their faces and and that's about relationship. It's about actually uh, stopping long enough to care. Uh, we're not so big that we shouldn't know people's names and shouldn't know how to recognize each other. And um, if you need a little jump start early uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, which is wedged in between uh, Ephesians and Colossians, New Testament book. But we're wrapping up our series on functional faith, developing faith for everyday life. Um, we say that's in contrast to like uh, function fitness, which is opposed to uh, situational fitness. So you got your uh, your super tight, stretchy shirt on, you got your wrist wraps, and you got your hand wraps, and you got your knee bands on, and everything, so you can lift 400 pounds. But if you take all that stuff off, you couldn't lift that weight, and you can't do it without a squat rack, and and you can do all that weight, and then you go to pick up your suitcase and throw your back out because. <laughs> That's the everyday living that we live with. And same thing with our, our, our functional faith life is uh, it, at times we see that people come to church when you have needs, and, and church is a great place to come if you've got needs. But understand that you don't do this every day. And so we have to have faith that endures uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and for whatever life throws at us. And, and the way that we do that is we have to learn the disciplines and the habits that the Bible clearly shows us. And, and as I was sharing this with a, a young lady yesterday, is it's all a matter of choice. What we do and what we don't do is a matter of choice. None of things in the Bible are super mystical that require A, a degree, B, some uh, higher education, higher mentality. He chose people that were way down here, just like you and me, fishermen, right? Their only task was this complicated, grab nets, throw them in the water, and wait, and then drag them back in. Throw them in the water and wait, and drag them back in. These were not highly trained, highly educated, highly anything guys. And those are the people that he chose because he wanted you to understand and he wanted me to understand that it's just following Jesus that makes a difference. And it's the same way with this, is if we'll follow the pattern that he lays out for us that doesn't come overnight, it's, it takes habits, it takes training, it takes some desire to do this. So we've, we've broken this down into uh, some, some big chunks of, of ideas. So what is functional faith? Again, it's this training and aligning your habits. Now, uh, I've been talking about this, and I save it for this last week so that hopefully you'll remember this. We're not talking about going to some place to get spiritually fit. You don't have to go see some guru. You don't have to have your aura read. You don't have to do any of that. The training is training our lives of, oh, I'm not very good at reading the Bible. I always forget. Well, set an alarm in your phone. Oh, I... I I'm not very good at praying. Great, just start someplace. Give yourself one minute and just talk to God. And it's going to feel strange at first, just like anything else. Anything that, that's new to you that you try, it's going to feel strange. 
And then the second part is the alignment is we have to begin to not align ourselves with the world and the culture and that style of how we live and that pace at which we live. And we start aligning ourselves with here's how God's word says that we should live. Here's how mature people, mature Christians should live. And we begin to align ourselves so that everything in our life becomes orderly. And it doesn't mean that there's no fun and it doesn't mean you're a boring person. In fact, it means it gives you the space for fun because most of the time, because I didn't grow up in church, I didn't have faith, most of the things I thought were going to be fun ended up ending in trouble or disgrace or pain or shame or even just costly stuff, right? I wish I had all the money back I had spent on all the frivolous stuff that didn't add to one part of my spirit, my life, my day, my anything. It just was gone. And it's a process of aligning, just like in your car, if all of your tires are going a different direction, it you can still drive that car, but it's not so fun. <laughs> and that's what we have to begin to do with our lives, is we realize which parts are out of alignment in in. In reference to God's Word, we begin to bring it back into alignment with God's Word. Not what people say, not even what pastors say, but what God's Word says. And definitely not what the culture says, because they've got a very different standard. So, it's also about developing a strong, healthy relationship with God and other people. That's why we're here. That's why we have church, so that we come together, we join together to have a, a family of faith, a smaller community of believers, so that we can come together and corporately worship God, but also that we encourage each other, we help each other, we confess to each other, we pray, we do things together that we don't normally get to do in our lives outside. And, and He wants a right relationship with you and with the people around you. But those are, those are based on two separate things. First of all, your response to God's Word. So when you hear it, just like you're going to hear God's word this morning, what is your response going to be? Are you going to say, wow, I never heard that before, and then you walk off and forget it? Or are you going to say, I need to do something about that? Because your response to God's word determines your relationship with God and other people. God's word is filled with stories and stories and stories and, and descriptions and prescriptions of of how we're supposed to relate and how we're supposed to treat each other. And yet I find that many times people struggle with that, thinking, I'm not a people person. God never says you have to be a people person, but God also said you can't do this life alone and be in right relationship with Him and other people. So He doesn't say you have to just be the life of the party. But I also see that a lot of people struggle in relationship with God. They either don't understand Him, they overly fear Him, where it's not comfortable to go to Him, or they have no fear of Him, and they think, like, everything's cool. Whatever I do, I just get to do. And those are two problems that He says, hey, that helps with the relationship when you have the right response to my word. And then lastly on that is your spiritual growth depends on your commitment, just like anything else you're trying to do, right? If you only practice something one time a week, it's going to take you a long time to master that skill. And so if you're a Sunday-only Christian, you're going to, it doesn't mean that what you're doing here this morning is, is worthless, but it's also something that's going to take a super long time for you to get a handle on this. Think of anything else. I, I just golf once a week. Well, you can enjoy that. But you're probably not going to get any better just going once a week. You know what you got to do? You got to put in some extra time. Right? 
How about eating? We're all pretty good at that, right? How many of you only do it once a week? Right? So as we look at this this morning, I just want you to understand that this is not based on guilt or shame or me trying to crowbar you, and it's definitely not trying to get you in a fitness plan. If, if you need to get in better shape, then get in better shape, not because I tell you to, but because you want to live a good life. But the reality is, regardless of your outer shape, the inner shape you, the inner fit you, is what's going to last forever. It's what's really going to direct how the inner you, the real you, is going to have a good life or a not-so-good life. Because there's plenty of people in great shape that have isolated themselves from people and from God, and they're loners, and they don't have the life that they could have. And so, as I've said before, uh, we see all kinds of crazy things at the gym and funny things at the gym. And, and I've actually seen this. This isn't my video, but I've actually seen this part at the gym. So, so hang on for just a second as you see this goofy stuff that happens at the gym. If you'd run that video real quick. Now, why I show these videos is, is twofold. I think they're just funny. <laughs> Because it's real. <laughs> These are not actors. This is real stuff happening in the gym. And secondly, because some of you this morning maybe feel like that at the gym. You come to church, you, or you maybe, maybe uh, even worse, you were raised around Christianity, but nobody really taught you the basics of how, when, what, where, who. And so it may feel like it's all new. And so you got some kid, I mean, I, I just thought it was amazing. He's in a gym barefoot. That's the part I noticed. And then you didn't know how to use that equipment. That equipment is not designed to lay your whole body on the ground and then fling it up into the air and slam your face into the bar. I mean, what's the training? Stronger forehead? I mean, I, I don't know what to... But if you don't know, then it's very hard to just walk into a gym or walk into a church and pick up on what's being laid down. How do I do this? How do I navigate? How is this, how is this functional? How is this going to help me? And, and so I want to make sure that we get this because it doesn't just come naturally. It comes where we, you know, if you're unsure and you don't ask, then maybe find somebody that seems to know what they're doing, just like people do at the gym. Sometimes people need to just stop instead of just engaging the equipment. Watch how somebody else is using the equipment before you use that equipment. Right? Have that kid watch somebody else use that equipment, I guarantee he wouldn't have done that. Unless it was somebody trying to mess with him and they showed him, this is how you use that equipment, and bam. But we all have the ability to increase and strengthen our faith. And so if you'll join me in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read this part. Philippians chapter 2 is a book by Paul who, uh, if you're not sure you a Christian, you're not sure you like Christians, then you should read a lot of Paul's writing because Paul was somebody that hated Christians. Paul was somebody that actually persecuted Christians and, and actually stood by as Christians were murdered and drugged them back to jail and chained. And then after that process actually became a Christian because of an encounter with God. And so uh, he's writing to this church in Philippi trying to help them understand how they navigate their faith and how they, how they bring everything that they've learned into a real-life, everyday type of faith. So 
Here he is, verses 12 through 15. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved, in, as you have always obeyed, he's, he's saying, I'm so thankful that you obey what's being taught, not just in my presence or not just when I'm there, but now much more in my absence. And so stop there for just a second and be honest with yourself. Think about this. You remember when you were a teenager, and some of you are already still there. It's one thing to be obedient when your parents are in the house. It's another thing if you're obedient when your parents are away or out of town. Right? And as soon as they're out of town, I'm the master of me. And there's some of you that are natural rule keepers, and you're like, they'll find out somehow. They'll, And there's some of you that are like, you don't think that you have neighbors. You don't think that people know you. You don't think that people watch you. And you just think, nobody's ever going to find out until the folks come home. But what really makes the difference here is obedience that doesn't have to be brought about through force or intimidation. God doesn't have to be in the room for you to obey. I don't have to walk with you every day and say, oh, Amy, you shouldn't be doing that. Little Stevie, you got to... What about the obedience that you've just decided, this is what I should do, and it's the obedience when nobody's present, it's just you doing it because you know you should do it. See, that's the best diet plan, that's the best workout plan, and that is the best faith plan, is that you'll do it on your own because it's coming from the inside, not from the outside. So this is what he's saying, I'm so happy, I'm overjoyed that you're obeying, even when I'm God, even when I'm God, and look what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? Now, this has been misquoted a lot, and this has been misdiagnosed quite a bit. And, and here's the reality as I look at it. It's not your job to work out somebody else's salvation, right? Because he says work out your own salvation. And salvation isn't just the act of saying, okay, I'm, I'm giving my life to Christ. That's just a moment in time. Salvation is what's happening every day of your life as He's saving you from you and saving you from your past and saving you from everything that's going on around you. Salvation is an ongoing process with God as He begins to save more and more of our life and our brain and our, and our spirit. But He's also saying that we should do this with this fear and trembling, not like, oh, He's going to squash me. He's not saying that at all. But remembering that He is God. And that we remember what he's done for us, right? That's why I bring up the, the thing about obeying your parents when they're not there. Because when they're gone and there's no fear and trembling, the fear and trembling happens when they come back and they say, uh, you need to get downstairs right now. Is there something we need to talk about? And kids, if you have, your parents ever ask you that, don't say a word. It's a trick. It's a trick parents learned in Parenting 101. Because when my folks asked, I'm thinking, well, how far do we want to go back? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff you didn't see. <laughs> Are we talking like this weekend? Are we talking like five minutes ago? Are we talking... But when there's no fear of God and a moral life, 
it leads us in places where we tend to be disobedient and rebellious, not only to God, but to people around us. And so he's saying that our job is to not worry about everybody else. And this was a problem in the church years and years ago is we were more worried about what somebody else was doing. We were more worried about what the world is doing instead of we should be working out the stuff in us, right? Now, if we were to take this just really, really literal this morning, God's telling us to work out, right? But to work out our salvation. And we should do it in such a way that we take it seriously and we want it to honor Him and we want it to be good for the people around us instead of the opposite of that. That's the fear and trembling. It's not like that you have to be, oh, it's God. and that, That's awesome. Honor Him. Reverence Him. But if that's all you do is sit there and shake and go, it's God, that's not working anything out. It's not making your faith any stronger. Then he goes on, he says, verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you. Look at this. You work it out, and he's going to work in you. As he works in you, you just work it out, and that's a process, just like I said about the gym, of learning the do's and the don'ts, the pains and rewards, the interactions and the things you shouldn't interact in. God's going to work in you both the will to begin to do these things and to do. Look at this. Now, this is important for some of you right here, because, again, we're talking about, I, I just assumed from week one that we don't know anything. He, first of all, has to work on our will, because many of us come to church, but we still want to do the stuff we want to do. We're still invoking our will over our lives and our work and our decisions instead of saying, what does God want? How would we how would he want me to handle the situation? How would he want me to handle my money? How would he want me to have my marriage? How would he want me to raise my children? How would he want me to go to work today? How would he want me to deal with the person that gets under my skin? How would he want me to? See, then it's his will and not our will. And some of you still haven't got to that point here. And that's great because it's a process. But if you think just coming to church and sitting here and listening to me is going to change you, it probably is not. It's going to be a response to God's Word as you absorb it and say, I need to make some adjustments. And He has to start working on my will because our human will always exposes itself when it's confronted with authority, right? You meet a police officer and they say, stop, you've got a choice. Now, for some of you, are like, we do? Certainly, watch the news. We've got choices all over the place, right? Some people, most people, wise people, stop when they say stop. But you do have a choice. You can keep going. You can run. You can return fire. You can do all of those things. That's within your human will. Now, you also don't get to control the outcome once you put your will into motion which is another reason why we want to know what God wants us to do because He always works for our good. To will, and then the second part, and it is the second part, because once you can give your will over to God, then you can begin to do God's will. Notice how He ends that. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. See, when we give up our will, it doesn't mean that we become clones and robots, but it, what it really means is my focus now is to live my best life here under God's authority, doing what's right for Him, which will 
turn out being what's right for me and other people. You see, when it's just a do of sitting in a church, there's people that do all kinds of crazy and horrendous things and go to church. But when we surrender our will and then we decide, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to do something that's about God and making Him happy instead of trying to just be a, well, it's all about me. And when we first come to church, all of us, it is about us. But then as God begins to work in us, He's going to start showing you that I've gifted you and I've given you skills to interact and to help the people around you. You're not just here for you. You're not a parasite. It's not just every service is about you, every person is about you, every program is about you. It's a community. It's a relationship. It's a family. And so these things are important is that when we work out our own salvation, understanding that it's about me and God and me and other people, I'll do things a little bit differently. Look at how he says in verse 14, right here would just change many of our lives. Do most things without complaining. Does your Bible say that this morning? So I hope you've got it dialed up someplace. Don't sit there and, I mean, who knows what I put on the screen. You know me, I'm, I'm weird. You need to know what God's Word really says. And this is the part, like I said, it's not that I don't understand this that makes it hard. It's that I do understand this that makes it hard. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, every one of us are teenagers, and every one of us have extremely good practice in this. We know how to do lots of things with complaining and disputing, right? Complaining means, that's oh, not fair. I cleaned my room last year. Why do I have to do it again? And disputing is, well, Bob didn't clean his room. How come I have to clean mine? My sister, she always gets to, that's disputing. And if we don't get out of that habit, we just carry it out into adulthood, and it just changes how we say it and the words that we use, but it's pretty much the same. And you've met people like this, I'm sure. They're complainers and disputers. And yet, God's Word, which is so rich, and He's telling this to church people, just like you and me, that part of our spiritual faith building is to do all things without complaining or disputing. You don't need to argue about it. I don't get paid enough to do that. Disputing. I don't like to do that. Complaining. Right? Because the world is full of stuff we're not going to like to get to do, and the world is full of stuff that we don't get paid enough to do. Come on, every one of us doesn't get paid enough, no matter what the job is. Pretty soon, something's going to happen. You're going to be working around some people, and you're going to say, I don't get paid enough for this. I know I made a million two last year, but I don't get paid enough for this. And that's not my salary, by the way. I'm just using it as an example. wouldn't want to take a pay cut. Million two. Verse 15. Why should we do things without complaining and disputing? Great question. That you may become, now that's an important word, all right? And if you're not there yet, this word's for you this morning. This is a transformation word, right? Think of a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? 
they're born this wiggly little worm, and then through a process, okay, stick with me for just a bit. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch Animal Planet sometime, okay? You can probably even Google it, get on YouTube. Something begins to change in that caterpillar that doesn't happen overnight, and then it builds itself a little cocoon. And in the dark of that cocoon, through the hardship of change, and through time, all of a sudden, something completely different comes out on the other side. It went in a wiggly, furry worm that scooted along the ground. And then, who knows what's going on in the inside because it's covered, it's secret. And all of a sudden, the cocoon starts to come apart, and all of a sudden, antenna comes out, and a different body shape comes out, and wings come out, and the worm is gone, and you have this beautiful flying insect that doesn't look like what it used to look like. That's the becoming. That's what he's talking about. This is a process that is just a place where we start someplace. He says that you may become what? Blameless. Because when we're complainers and disputers, we're not blameless. When we have an arrogant attitude towards God, we're not blameless. When we treat other people poorly, we're not blameless. And he said, but through this process of beginning to allow me to show you my will and you actually doing what I say, working out your salvation, you can become blameless and harmless. You're not going to hurt yourself and you're not going to hurt other people. Because I care so much about you, I don't want to see your life messed up. And I care so much about the people around you, I don't want to see their life messed up. I don't want to see you blamed, and I don't want to see you harmed. And the only way to do that is you've got to get your will into my will and understand that it's for my good pleasure, which actually helps you, that when you decide you're going to please me, then your life gets better. But that's a hard concept at times. This process, this transformation to becoming blameless and harmless, that you become children of God. Look at this, without fault. That through this process, he begins to say, see my kids? And I'm going to step on my favorite lady's toes this morning, but there's a reason that God doesn't have grandchildren. This is not a joke. Because grandparents never see fault in their grandchildren. God sees fault in us and tries to remedy it for us, right? Grandparents don't have to worry about the fault because when the mess comes, we just send them back to the parents. But God just sees his kids and he says, I don't want them to grow up a bunch of wild things. I don't want them to have their lives on a collision course with disaster. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to show them where the mess is and I'm going to help them through this. I don't just look at everybody and go, oh, aren't they awesome? Aren't they adorable? This is awesome. And then they begin to act up and God says, where's their parents? God is a good father. He says, I want you to be children of God without fault. 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This brings us all the way back to what I said. We cannot look to the generation slash culture because it's not regardless of age. I think sometimes when we say generation, we think, oh, all those younger people. I'm not saying younger people. I'm saying a world system, a culture that is crooked. Think about that. And perverse that none of this is what they're doing and none of this is what they want. And just like you and me, until we give our will over to God, we'll continue to function in a crooked and a perverse way. No matter how you rationalize it, no matter how you justify it, it is crooked and perverse. And many of us, we're just lucky we haven't been caught yet. Because you know where you've broken the rules. And just because nobody pointed at you, nobody hauled you off to jail, you knew you didn't hold the standard that God has set before us. And that's okay. We're becoming blameless and faultless and children of God. But it's a process that doesn't just happen overnight. But notice what his plan is. Look at this. As you give your will to me and you begin to do the right things and think the right things and you do things without complaining and disputing and all of a sudden you're becoming blameless and harmless and you're in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, you will shine as lights in the world. Look at that. We're supposed to be different. Our lifestyles are supposed to be different. Our thoughts are supposed to be different. Our heart power is supposed to be different. Our energy is supposed to be used on different things. Yes, you've got a job. Yes, you've got to raise children and grandchildren. Yes, you've got to go to school and do all that. But we should still be lights that shine brightly in a crooked and perverse world. But if you look like the world, you won't shine at all. You blend in, and God has never called us to blend in. It's not the story of God at all. In fact, he called the people out of the world to be his own special people. And then he called us to be special people. Now, here's what's awesome. He wants everybody to be special people. (laughs) But some choose not to. So how do we work this out? How do we become these lights? It's, it's taking this discipling thing, and, and this is the last set. This is, we've shared 12 over these, or, or 9 over these week, and we're going to finish with these last three to cap it off at 12. And, and if, you, if you missed, you can go online and get it, get on the app, and you can get it. But this first one's big. Think about this, generosity. We live in a world of today where people are scrimping, and greedy like never before. And this started several years ago. It, churches, man, churches all over the world took huge hits when the economy changed. People just stopped giving to missions. People stopped supporting missionaries. People just stopped, period. Because it hit them where their faith and their will intersected, right? Everybody wants to serve God until it costs them something. And this generosity that I believe that we can shine like never before with people that it will get people's attention if you're a generous person. Now, generosity doesn't mean you just throw windows out the, or throw money out the window as you're driving down the street. That's foolishness. That's not generosity. But generosity is more than just giving. It's changing the way you think about and manage your resources. Everything that you've got is from God. And when you can come to that conclusion, then you'll use your stuff differently. 
and you'll understand where I should put my resources and how I should spend my resources from your time and your talents and your money and your vacation and all of that. How should I use that? If it's truly God's, how should I use what he's given me? But if it's yours, you just use it on you. That's what makes us selfish. Because if you believe that everything you've got is for you and from you, you'll use it whenever you want to use it, and who cares what anybody says. But if you believe it's about God and it's for you and other people, you'll use it differently. And it doesn't have to make sense. And I'm here to tell you, we've practiced this. Melissa and I have practiced over these. And it hasn't gotten any easier. And at times it requires personal sacrifice. Through the course of our life, we've given away two cars to people that needed them. I shouldn't say given away one time we charged a dollar. And at that time, I was a little bit younger, and I just assumed that God would respond in kind and that somehow I would get a car. Well, that car didn't come, which meant I had to ride a bike to work every day. Rain, shine, whatever. But it didn't stop me from giving away my next car when I had the extra and God laid on my heart to do that. We support missionaries. We support all kinds of different things. But it's not about a dollar amount. And don't get hung up on that. It's about a heart issue. As we realize that what God has given us is His, not ours. Proverbs says, One gives freely, and yet he grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give. Now listen to that. You're withholding what you should give. It's not that you don't have anything to give. You're withholding with what you should give, and you only suffer want. I believe that's the state that our nation is in right now, is that we're the most blessed nation on the planet, and yet we're the greediest, most selfish place on the planet in most cases, and we're only suffering want because we keep holding back what we should give, not just at church, but around the world. The problem is not money, and it's not only money that's the issue. It's our attitude towards the money. We have to learn to be content no matter how much money we have. First Timothy talks about this. Paul teaches the rich, those that you feel like you're doing just great. He says, be rich in good works. You think you've got lots of money, but that stuff can grow wings and fly away. And you should be generous and ready to share. Now think about that. If we just took this as a nation... How would it change the world if the rich are ready to be generous and share instead of I got to get mine and I got to have it and a whole different concept. It's about having the right attitude that should be done with cheer. God, thank you. It comes from you in the excess. The fact that I have excess should make me be cheerful. <laughs> And I want that excess to be used instead of wasted. Generosity. Next, a really difficult one in our culture today, purity. The Bible used to call this chastity, but it's kind of fallen out of play with that word. And this is a, a tough discipline for us today because we are highly sensitized and highly uh, subject to this. Just realize that your natural inclinations will draw us into sexual immorality just by our very nature. We have to be disciplined to flee it and to pursue pure thought. 
and impure actions. As the world around us becomes less and less moral, less and less focused on what God does and, and or care about people, we're suspect and susceptible to that type of thought because it's bombarding us all the time. Now, I'm not as old as many in this room, but let's just be honest. A cursory glancing at TV is you see more in a soap commercial today than you ever saw in R-rated movies back in the day. <laughs> and yet, it's just nothing. We just, oh, it's a mostly nude person. Okay, they're just selling soap. And we become desensitized to all of that. And it hasn't made us more pure. In fact, it's taken it away. The engagement of children in sex at younger and younger ages is just a sign <laughs> that this is having a trickle-down effect on our current generation and culture. Sex trafficking, pornography is not going away. In fact, it's growing. Sex crimes are growing. And it's a matter of purity. But it doesn't mean celibacy. That's, that's an actual gifting that the Bible talks about. And, and if you don't feel like you have the gift of celibacy, then he's not calling you to be celibacy. But it also means that this great gift that God has given us called sex is only supposed to be within the bounds of marriage. And I want to say that very strongly this morning and very surely this morning because it's God's will. Whatever your age, if you are six, I mean, think about this. Maybe you didn't even know this. Maybe you didn't want to know this. The STD, sexually transmitted disease rates, is going through the roof in nursing homes. As older people through chemistry are having sex more and more often and longer into their lives because they're widowers now. And now think about this. It's a matter of taking what God meant for something really great, but keeping it in its proper perspective of what it's supposed to be used for. And when it's taken out of context, it brings pain and problems and destruction. And so for illustration, real quick this morning, I want you to think of it as fire, okay? Because this is a hot topic, because this leads into such areas of our lives with deep roots. And sexual sin is not like any other sin in the Bible. It's, it's not worse or, or better or, or it's just different and has long-lasting consequences according to God's Word. But if you think of it as a fire, you keep it in its proper spot in the fireplace. We enjoy it. Man, like that fire. You transfer that out of the fireplace and put it on the couch. What happens? Destruction, right? Now, what was meant for that spot that didn't harm anything, you bring it out of that environment, you place it in another environment, and instantly you've got an issue, don't you? Bring it into your children's room and set it on the carpet, and what happens? Or your car, or out of its environment, out of its prescribed area, it can be deadly, it can have long-lasting and scarring effects just like this issue that the Bible talks about a lot. And the world today is trying to say, oh, it's fine, it's fine. And we're seeing the trickle-down effect. It's running rampant. Jesus taught also that purity isn't just committing the physical act of adultery, 
but it's also about resisting the underlying root of the lust. Jesus always took what the law of the Ten Commandments was, you shall not commit adultery, and then he always took it one step further, and he says, I've told you this, but I also say that when you look at that woman with lust that you want to have sex with her, you've, it's like you've committed the act. Because he knows that where the mind acts, the body will follow. And he's like, what you really have to deal with is the drive on the inside. You deal with the drive on the inside, it'll take, of the, take care of the act on the outside. Last but not least is disciple-making. Now, for some of you, this is the worst of the three. <laughs> because as, as hard as this is to hear, I have had people literally tell me this. I'll never do that. I'm not sure I'd ever share my faith with somebody. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible clearly says that you're supposed to. He never said, it's going to be so comfortable, it's going to be awesome. He never said that. <laughs> he never said it's going to come naturally. He never said that, hey, it, it's just going to, you're going to reach a certain point and just everything you say is, he never said that either. But he also never said that even if you're nervous, you just get to abstain. It's a spiritual discipline because we have to face the potential of rejection and judgment and people misunderstanding, but I believe if we do it correctly through relationship, that it works out properly. And yet it doesn't come naturally. It is hard. Jesus did make the command that we're supposed to actively seek out the opportunity to share with other people the gospel, to baptize new believers, to teach them how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. It's a cornerstone of the church. The reason many of us got saved is because somebody before us did this and shared the gospel with us. In the early church, it was a daily practice as they gathered together. And I know it's a, I didn't do the research, but what I see out there is kind of interesting that now we have a whole new culture that says, is it even right to share our faith with other people? When you think about what God's word tells us, and then you think about that concept where a new generation would say, it's not even right to share our faith with other people. Who's right? A cultural preference? or creator God. Now, nobody asks whether it's comfortable or easy, but it is what he tells us to do. Just like being pure, just like being generous, just like all of those things. And it is hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we get to say, oh, I don't have to do it. It just means I have to begin to train and align myself to his will. And we find different ways to do that. And for those of you that struggle with this, I'll tell you how not to do it. Don't walk up to a stranger's door. Hi, I'm somebody you don't know. Do you want to accept Jesus? What? It's one of the hardest things to do, and you're probably not, probably not going to have an inroad with that person. It comes through relationship. It comes through relationship. These three things are not easy, but it's the training part that gets us to those places where we begin to work on it, right? 
And that last one is the last for a reason, is that until we feel confident with God and how he works with us, we probably won't feel comfortable sharing with other people. That's part of the process, right? But we've got to start someplace working on us.